Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Today, we are reaching the final stages of Darwin's voyage on HMS Beagle. My paws and whiskers, I'm late. Very, very late. This one barely counts as the March episode. I had to pack in a colossal amount and then the philosophy happened and Australia and I've had to split it up into two episodes. At least it is a March episode in March. One humbly craves your pardon and hopes the pleasure you get from this show outweighs your impatience, good listener. And you can forgive your committed but flawed host. Before we get started, I've got some community news and reviews. I've had a lovely email from listener Phil, who tutors history for children and has been using the show and website to help. I'm thrilled to help anyone studying, especially young learners. One of the children, Alice, suggested I put up a link to an article she found about Big Ben. I've done that, Alice, and people can go to the podcast website to use the link you suggested. Thank you very much. I had a lovely listener review from Murdrack, USA, five star, quote, insightful Victorian stories. Age of Victoria host Chris Fernandez Packham delivers a truly captivating podcast with the Age of Victoria. The show is a perfect mix of history, culture and personal stories, all woven together with a people-centric focus. Mr. Fernandez Packham has a deep knowledge of the subject matter, and it really shines through in every episode. From the Industrial Revolution to the reign of Queen Victoria, Age of Victoria covers the events and people that shape the world we live in today. Whether you're a history buff or just a curious listener, this podcast is a must-listen, on my must-listen list. End quote. Well, thank you. That's a really, really sweet review. And then... The Owen <laughs> at the excellent Victorian Periodical Parade podcast left a lovely review too. Quote, a very metered British accent conveys the meticulously curated research on all things Victorian. Owen really enjoyed the episodes on Charles Darwin. So much knowledge was gained during the listening of those episodes. Please give the podcast a listen if the title piques your interest you will not be disappointed, end quote. Thank you. If you haven't listened to Victorian Periodical Parade, please head straight to Apple Podcasts after you finish this episode and subscribe. It is a must-listen for all Victorian superfans. I've also had a very generous donation from Colin in Australia. Listener donations help keep the show ad-free and independent, so it is really appreciated in these tough times. I've also had a lovely anonymous donation, which I appreciate. I've put a post in the Facebook group with a plan of HMS Beagle, a photo of the modern full-size replica of Beagle at a museum in Chile, and a YouTube 3D virtual deck tour of HMS Beagle. So check those out. She's a lot smaller than you think. Now, with the Galapagos Islands behind him, Darwin and HMS Beagle set course for Australia and Tahiti. It was a 3,200-mile voyage, but worth it, because Tahiti was a sailor's paradise. 
That word is overused, yet it fits so perfectly. It would be hard to describe just how different it would have been for Europeans, used to the cold grey rains of England, the dank forests of Germany, the dust of Spain, with the endemic poverty, disease and war of Europe. Tahiti must have seemed like a return to the Garden of Eden. Darwin found mountains to climb and views to admire. He ate fish and beef wrapped in banana leaves, cooked under heated stones as he gazed out across the mountains whilst they camped by a stream. He was enthusiastic from the word go. Quote, At daylight, Tahiti, an island which must forever remain classical to the voyager in the South Sea, was in view. At a distance, the appearance was not attractive. The luxuriant vegetation of the lower part could not yet be seen, and as the clouds rolled past, the wildest and most precipitous peaks showed themselves towards the centre of the island. As soon as we anchored in Matavi Bay, we were surrounded by canoes, This was our Sunday, but the Monday of Tahiti. If the case had been reversed, we should not have received a single visit, for the injunction not to launch a canoe on the Sabbath is rigidly observed. After dinner, we landed to enjoy all the delights produced by the first impressions of a new country, and that country, the charming Tahiti. A crowd of men, women and children was collected on the memorable Point Venus, ready to receive us, laughing, merry faces. They marshalled us towards the house of Mr. Wilson, the missionary of the district, who met us on the road and gave us a very friendly reception. After sitting a very short time in his house, we separated to walk about, but returned there in the evening. The land capable of cultivation is scarcely in any part more than a fringe of low alluvial soil, accumulated round the base of the mountains, and protected from the waves of the sea by a coral reef, which encircles the entire line of coast. Within the reef, there is a smooth expanse of water, like that of a lake, where the canoes of the natives comply with safety, and where ships anchor. The low land, which comes down to the beach of coral sand, is covered by the most beautiful productions of the intertropical regions. In the midst of bananas, oranges, cocoa nut and breadfruit trees, spots are cleared where yams, sweet potatoes and sugar cane and pineapples are cultivated. Even the brushwood is an imported fruit tree, namely the guava, which from its abundance has become as noxious as a weed. In Brazil, I have often admired the varied beauty of the bananas, palms and orange trees contrasted together. Here we also have the breadfruit, conspicuous from its large, glossy and deeply digitated leaf. It is admirable to behold groves of a tree sending forth its branches with the vigour of an English oak, loaded with the large and most nutritious fruit. However, seldom the usefulness of an object can account for the pleasure of beholding it. In the case of these beautiful woods, the knowledge of their high productiveness no doubt enters largely into the feeling of admiration. The little winding paths, cool from the surrounding shade, led to the scattered houses 
the owners of which everywhere gave us a cheerful and most hospitable reception. End quote. He found the men intelligent, friendly and handsome. Their dark tan skin made him almost jealous and he seemed to find a form of purity on the islands. He said of his guides, quote, The Tahitians, with their naked tattooed bodies, their heads ornamented with flowers and seen in the dark shade of these groves, would have formed a fine picture of man inhabiting some primeval land. End quote. The European Romantic movement had been incorporating an idealised Tahitian and Tahiti. Europeans felt seeing them was a form of time travel, a way to see how Europeans might have looked before the rise of their own civilization. That's a tricky philosophical problem right there. For many modern historians, this is a colonialist mindset that erased thousands of years of lived experience in conditions radically different from Europe. The Europeans were taking the modern Tahitian society, one that had overcome the challenges of centuries, and talking about it as a less advanced civilization that had failed to launch. Some anthropologists might push back and say that Tahiti had avoided the technological advances of other civilizations and therefore could be a legitimate comparator to see how early European societies might have looked as long as environmental factors were borne in mind. For many Europeans in the colonial eras of the 18th and 19th century, other societies that weren't as technically advanced would be considered primitives. Whatever paradise it might have seemed, however pristine the visiting sailors might have found it, Tahiti had been in contact with the European powers since the 1760s. It was discovered by Europeans in 1767 by Captain Wallace on HMS Dolphin. On June 23rd, 1767, the Dolphin entered Matavu Bay, which Wallace named Port Royal Harbour. Yes, another one. The first contact did not go well. The local tribe had a prophecy about being conquered by a strange ship full of strangely dressed people. The scurvy-ridden and exhausted crew of the Dolphin, half dead from a long passage round the Cape and through the Pacific, were surprised to be surrounded by canoes full of exotic, naked Tahitian women, offering the sailors all of the fun things that they had mostly been missing. Not included in the brochure were the hidden ambush parties of angry native men. The war canoes suddenly surged forward and hurled stones at the ship. The British responded and a week-long game of cat and mouse began between the ship and around 150 war canoes. Those were the kind of numbers that could overwhelm even a warship if the captain made a mistake. Eventually, Captain Wallace decided to bring things to a conclusion. He couldn't leave. His crew were dying of scurvy and they wouldn't make it to another place to find food or water. He brought his cannon into action, sinking several canoes before bombarding a crowded clifftop to drive home the point that he had the firepower and range and was not going to hold back his arm forever. At this point, the Tahitians had had their first encounter with cannons and pretty soon everyone agreed it was time for negotiations, trade and plenty of sex. 
Wallace claimed a name Tahiti, King George III's island, after the then King of England. Wallace and his men stayed in Tahiti for five weeks. During the entire five weeks, Wallace was rather ill and mostly remained in his cabin, only leaving the ship twice, most probably carried by some of his men. He did at least find time to view a topless dancing session laid on for him by the Queen of Tahiti, so at least he remained a credit to the annals of Royal Naval Diplomacy by his noble devotion to duty. It all sounds fun for the HMS Dolphin and Captain Wallace, but levity aside, this was a deeply traumatic encounter for the native peoples. They were suddenly visited by a huge, immensely powerful ship full of people unlike any they had ever met. People who decided they were going to take food and whatever else they wanted in trade, or else they would use weapons more powerful than anything anyone had ever seen or perhaps even imagined. Resistance was futile. They also had sex with native women, which was fine according to Tahitian customs at the time, but they almost certainly introduced syphilis to the native people. From there, the familiar story of devastation by previously unknown diseases began. Darwin noted the work of Christian missionaries was reasonably advanced, and there were tensions in the island society showing already. Every footstep we take leaves an impression. Even a scientist observing the most isolated spot on Earth changes it. Darwin was observing a world that would change radically over the next few decades. The native peoples had changed the islands, fished, cut down trees, had intertribal wars, and engaged in religious sacrifice. There is no untouched virgin paradise on earth, except the ones we let our minds create. As the Department of the Arts of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas at the Metropolitan Museum says, quote, Situated in the heart of Polynesia, the island of Tahiti has long held a fascination for Westerners, particularly the philosophers of the Romantic movement who held it to be an earthly paradise. In reality, however, the Tahitans, who referred and refer to themselves as Maohi, had the same virtues and failings found in any human society. Like many other Polynesian peoples, the Tahitians formerly lived in a rigidly stratified society. At the top were the Ali Ike, or the ruling chiefly class, a hereditary aristocracy believed to be descended directly from the gods, and to embody the sacred power or manner on earth. Below the Aliai were the Ra'atera, landed farmers and warriors, and below them the Manahuni, or commoners, mainly living along the coast. The Tahitians were dependent for their subsistence on both agriculture and the rich bounty of the seas that surrounded their island home. End quote. Men dressed in vibrant skirts, muscled and tanned, performed dances to the beat of drums. It was utterly alien to the European experience. The women would have appeared breathtaking, almost nude and sexual to the eyes of the straight-laced Victorians. The assumption that women must be dressing for men 
and be displaying sexual invitation for them was strong amongst European visitors who regarded being covered up as more important than being practical in a hot climate. Polynesian sexual customs were different from Europeans and many sailors enjoyed sexual hospitality whilst Christian missionaries attempted to stamp out alcohol and nudity. Tahitian women didn't have thousands of years of Christian anti-sexual propaganda or Old Testament-based patriarchal misogyny to demonise their sexuality, compare them to temptresses, or to equate chastity with the religious good. That would have to be hammered into them by the newcomers from Europe. Leaving aside the point that everyone should be free to do whatever they want with and to their bodies unless it harms others, this strange anti-sex stance has both ancient biological roots around ensuring paternity of children, which appears to be an intense fascination with the Abrahamic religions, but also has a deeply unhealthy amplification in Christianity. For the Christian missionaries, this wasn't a paradise with lots of people having a healthy relationship to sex and their bodies. It was a place of primitive debauchery. Christianity has a deeply problematic approach to sex and reproduction, not just in terms of the rules for Christian followers, but also by insisting Christianity is a universal religion whose rules apply to non-believers too. Since sex is a fundamental human drive and the basis for evolution, prohibitions on it can create immense cognitive dissonance. In 1829, dedicated missionary William Ellis wrote a book about his six years in Polynesia. He prefaced one volume with his views on Christianizing the native Tahitians. Quote, In some respects, the mythology of Tahiti presents features peculiar its own. In others, it exhibits a striking analogy to that of the nations of antiquity. In each, the light of truth occasionally gleams through the mass of darkness and error. The conviction that man is the subject of supernatural dominion is recognised in all, and the multiplied objects of divine homage, which distinguished the polytheism of the ancients, marked also that of the rude islanders. Nor was the fabulous religion of the latter deficient in the mummeries of sorcery and witchcraft, the delusion of oracles and the influence of other varieties of juggling and oppressive spiritual domination. The South Sea Islands appear under circumstances peculiar favourable to happiness, but their idolatry exhibits them as removed to the furthest extreme from such a state. The baneful effects of their delusion was increased by the vast preponderance of benignant deities, frequently the personifications of cruelty and vice. They changed the glory of God into the image of corruptible things, instead of exercising those affections of gratitude, complacency and love in the objects of their worship, which their living God supremely requires. They regarded their deities with horrific dread, and worshipped only with enslaving fear. While the false system of Tahiti shows the distance which those under its influence 
departed from the knowledge and service of the true God, it also furnishes additional confirmation of the fact that polytheism, whether exhibited in the fascinating numbers of classical poetry, the splendid imagery of Eastern fable, or the rude traditions of unlettered barbarians, is equally opposed to all just views of the being and perfections of the only proper object of religious homage and obedience, and that, whether invested with the gorgeous trappings of a cumbrous and imposing superstition, or appearing in the naked and repulsive deformity of rude idolatry, it is alike unfriendly to intellectual improvement, moral purity, individual happiness, social order, and national prosperity. These volumes also contain a brief, but it is hoped satisfactory, history of the origin, progress, and results of the missionary enterprise, which during the last thirty years has, under the divine blessing, transformed the barbarous, cruel, indolent, and idolatrous inhabitants of Tahiti and the neighbouring islands into a comparatively civilised, humane, industrious, and Christian people. They also comprise a record of the measures pursued by the native governments in changing the social economy of the people and regulating their commercial intercourse with foreigners. In the promulgation of a new civil code, the establishment of courts of justice, and the introduction of trial by jury. End quote. Well, there you go. Not just Christianity, but the bedrocks of Western capitalist society and democracy, all bundled up into one and hammered down your throat, whether you like it or not. Nor was it just sex that the missionaries were clamping down on. Dancing and singing of anything except hymns was banned, and visitors soon realised that Christian missionaries tended to be on what we might call the extreme fringes of Christianity. No one in the mainstream English churches would dream of banning singing, for instance, and missionaries were not always as well regarded in Victorian Britain as you might assume. Many were not part of the established church and were part of the outsider evangelical movement that was considered suspicious. Others were troubled and rigid people who held views that seemed deeply weird to many contemporaries. Still, they did at least push to ban infanticide and the sacrifice or cannibalism of defeated enemies. They also heavily targeted the children for re-education on the basis that if you could get the children converted, then they would be guaranteed to convert future society. Initially, many Tahitians were interested as they assumed that Christian culture and being able to read went hand in hand with European material success, at least as it appeared to Tahitians. When it became clear that they were not getting European material goods as part of the missionary work, they became less interested, leading to missionaries to create institutions and institute some incredibly harsh rules to try to force conversions. A key success for them was the conversion of the royal class and aristocracy, which enabled missionaries to leverage existing power structures. I do need to emphasise that conversion to Christianity could be sincere 
and the result of individual belief. Christianity remains one of the world's most popular religions and provides many of its followers with deep meaning and comfort. It would be foolish to assume that it was only done by force to people who never wanted it, just as it would be ignorant and naive to think that Christian conversion was never done with bloodshed and violence. In Tahiti, there were a lot of very willing converts. As Darwin noted, quote, Before we laid ourselves down to sleep, the elder Tahitian fell on his knees and with closed eyes repeated a long prayer in his native tongue. He prayed as a Christian should do, with fitting reverence, and without the fear of ridicule or any ostentation of piety. At our meals, neither of the men would taste food without saying beforehand a short grace. Those travellers who think that a Tahitian prays only when the eyes of the missionary are fixed on him should have slept with us that night on the mountainside. End quote. If you are not religious, it can be easy to confuse the strictures of organised religion with the attraction of personal faith. The fact that organised religion has a strong social and political element does not mean that individual believers can't find real faith in the core of the religion regardless. If you stripped away the Catholic or Anglican churches, the core teachings of Christianity are easy to understand and, with a lot of work, are pretty easy to translate into most languages. The London Missionary Society was pretty soon cranking out dictionaries and Bibles and, without an established church, they didn't have to bother with formal liturgies or official church calendars. They could concentrate on what to them was the core message of sin and redemption via Christ. As a rabbi wryly noted on Thought for the Day on BBC Radio 4, he was really jealous of the Christian Christmas story, as it was incredibly good for getting kids interested and none of the other religions had such a great holiday hook. The carrot of an easy core story, few dietary restrictions and the promise of eternal paradise linked to the stick of sin and the machinery of missionary education schools meant Christianity was quickly becoming established. The ban on singing failed badly at least. Darwin talked about the joy he and Captain Fitzroy had watching people hold spontaneous group singing sessions on the beach. Quote, Numbers of children were playing on the beach and had lighted bonfires which illuminated the placid sea and surrounding trees. Others in circles were singing Tahitian verses. We seated ourselves on the sand and joined the circle. The songs were impromptu. One little girl sang a line which the rest took up in parts, forming a very pretty chorus. The air was singular and their voices melodious. End quote. Ironically though, Darwin didn't find the women attractive. He was never short of a cutting remark or put down during his travels. This time, it was due to his loathing of the traditional Tahitian women's hairstyle. This cut was basically the same as a medieval monk's tonsure, top of the head shaved and hair round the sides. He wasn't going to be writing to his sister about the beautiful women of Tahiti as he had in Chile. He saved his continued praise for the men. Quote, 
I was pleased with nothing so much as the inhabitants. There is a mildness in the expression of their countenances, which at once banishes the idea of a savage, and intelligence, which shows that they are advancing in civilization. The common people, when working, keep the upper part of their bodies quite naked, and it is then that the Tahitians are seen to advantage. They are very tall, broad-shouldered, athletic, and well-proportioned. It has been remarked that it requires little habit to make a dark skin more pleasing and natural to the eye of a European than his own colour. A white man bathing by the side of a Tahitian was like a plant bleached by the gardener's art, compared with a fine dark green one growing vigorously in the open fields. Most of the men are tattooed, and the ornaments follow the curvature of the body so gracefully that they have a very elegant effect. One pattern, common but varying in its details, is somewhat like the crown of a palm tree. It springs from the central line of the back and gracefully curls round both sides. The simile may be a fanciful one, but I thought the body of a man thus ornamented was like the trunk of a noble tree embraced by a delicate creeper. End quote. Other thing that impressed Darwin immensely were his observations. As always, he was studying, noting, and exploring. Tahiti would provide the inspiration and evidence for his theory on coral reef and atoll formation. He took observations from the mountaintops. Quote, from the highest point which I attained, there was a good view of the distant island of Eminia, dependent on the same sovereign with Tahiti. On the lofty broken pinnacles, white massive clouds were piled up, which formed an island in the blue sky, as Emil itself did in the blue ocean. The island, with the exception of one small gateway, is completely encircled by a reef. At this distance, a narrow but well-defined, brilliantly white line alone was visible, where the waves first encountered the wall of coral. The mountains rose abruptly out of the glassy expanse of the lagoon, included within this narrow right line, outside which the heaving waters of the ocean were dark-coloured. Yet there was, to use a cliché, to be trouble in paradise. Tahiti was a key strategic location. For the British, it was a stopping point for shipping to the New South Wales colony and to Valparaiso in Chile. Valparaiso was a key naval base for both British and French shipping. At the time of Darwin's visit, the islands of Tahiti were already becoming part of a trade hub. Tahiti exported pearls, coconut oils, sugar, arrowroot and pearl shells, plus acted as a stopping point for the whaling trade. I really need to emphasise how vast the whaling industry was in the 19th century. European, North and South American and colonial whaling ships crisscrossed the seas. The Pacific is almost unimaginably vast, but it was alive with shipping. The British had already been interfering in Tahitian succession for some time, and it got rather confusing for a while. 
as the British decided to ignore the traditional Tahitian custom of recognising adopted heirs and instead effectively forced a young boy onto the throne. They then forced him to have a coronation ceremony, including being crowned by a London Christian missionary. Tahitians didn't use crowns, so this was just weird as far as they were concerned. The missionaries encouraged the new king to write to King George IV for British protection. The Americans wanted in on the act as well, as part of their longer-term plans to expand into the Pacific. They sent a man of war in 1826, whose captain signed a treaty with King Pomare III for peace, friendship and trade goods. The young king died in 1827, and his sister, or half-sister, depending on your view of sources from the aforementioned succession chaos, became Queen Pomare IV. Her full name was actually Aimata Pomare IV Vahino o Puna Ateri Itui. We all know I screwed that pronunciation up. No offence intended. Incidentally, Aimata is a traditional title that means Eater of the Eyes of the Defeated. How cool is that? Maybe not so much when you consider it was probably rather literal at one point in time. So when Darwin arrived and travelled, it was into a Tahiti that was dealing with social change, the increasing influence of Christian missionaries, and the pain of joining the world trading networks. Captain Fitzroy was going to make a big step change for the island situation, by getting the Queen to grant the repayment of damages she had been charged by the British as reparations for an alleged pirate attack. Fitzroy handled the potentially dangerous situation well. When Darwin talks about paradise and the men being a glimpse into primitive earlier times, he is ignoring these huge changes on Tahiti. First, just the changes from humans being there to cut down trees, plants and fish, and second, from the rapidly changing political and social situations. He wasn't observing a pristine paradise in which humans were few detached observers. Paradise, if there be such a thing, was lost long ago. Queen the Fourth was involved in a complex series of political moves herself. She was having to deal with ambitious tribal chiefs and Christian missionary influence, which she resented. According to Karen Stevenson of the University of Canterbury, in her paper, Aimata, Queen the Fourth, Thwarting Adversity in Early 19th Century Tahiti, quote, the Fourth was seen to be a key player in the reversion to heathenism. Her court was a virtual centre of heathen resistance to missionary teaching, as well as to the laws of her father. She delighted in watching dance performances and was apt to demand tribute, practices prohibited by the Pomer Code. Her companions were reminiscent of 18th century Arioi, mostly wild young men who practiced tattooing, made cider from fermented mangoes and slept and ate with the royal couple. She also appeared to be sympathetic to the Mama Eya movement, which was not only anti-missionary, but made a mockery of Christianity. 
end quote. I'm tempted to say that sounds rather more fun than the missionary school, to be honest. But her early actions and views soon changed after she put down a rebellion. She decided she needed Christian missionary structures to increase her domestic control and to extend some control over drunken sailors and other European traders. She astutely updated the legal code to control immigration, restrict sale of land to foreigners, restrict drunkenness, and crack down on prostitution. She was in an invidious position. The British, French and Spanish all had laid technical claims to Tahiti, although the British were not interested in pressing any actual claim, as long as trade was open and the Navy welcome to stop as needed, they didn't want the time, effort and expense of directly conquering the place. The French would make a very aggressive attempt to conquer Tahiti between 1844 and 1847. This war resulted in Queen Pomer IV of Tahiti writing to Queen Victoria to request military aid, and the Tahitian affair, as it was called, nearly resulted in a war between Britain and France in the 1840s. That would have changed the course of history pretty dramatically. A war between the ancient frenemies in Europe and across the Pacific, but with the improved military technologies of the Victorian era. Eventually, France would conquer Tahiti. Queen Victoria was sand by the incident, saying, quote, I talked with great regret of the unfortunate affair of Tahiti, which threatens to disturb the happy harmony established between England and France. The French Admiral, Du Petit Doureus, by name has taken possession of the Society Islands on the ground that the Queen Pomer hoisted her flag and has dethroned her and driven her from the palace. The English naval officer protested against the conduct of the French. The French government say this action was without their instructions, but the Admiral came there with three ships of the line. If the French at once disavow the Admiral, all may come right, and some treaty may be entered into, perhaps, similar to that regarding the Sandwich Islands. However, the Admiral not be disavowed, matters may become very serious, as we cannot acquiesce in this act. The Queen, having strong claims upon us, Lord Aberdeen has already at once represented this to St. Aulaire, and I hope that the King and Gazelle, who are both anxious to keep up the present good understanding between our countries, will do what is right and just. End quote. Sadly, Darwin was not impressed with Queen Pomer IV when she visited HMS Beagle to give them a farewell on the 25th of November. Quote, In the evening, four boats were sent for Her Majesty. The ship was dressed with flags and the yards manned on her coming on board. She was accompanied by most of the chiefs. The behaviour of all was very proper. They begged for nothing and seemed much pleased with Captain Fitzroy's presence. The Queen is a large, awkward woman without any beauty, grace or dignity. She has only one royal attribute, a perfect immovability of expression under all circumstances, and a rather sullen one at that. 
The rockets were most admired, and a deep ooh could be heard from the shore all around the dark bay after each explosion. The sailors' songs were also much admired, and the Queen said she thought that one of the most boisterous ones certainly could not be a hymn. The royal party did not return on shore till past midnight. End quote. HMS Beagle finally set course for New Zealand and Australia. No one will be surprised to learn that Darwin did not consider this as much fun as Tahiti. Let's remember that most Victorians would never have left Britain. Darwin was one of a tiny fraction of people who had travelled from the cold, grey and wet British Isles to the bright, hot Pacific. His accounts would be eagerly devoured by the curious at home. Jokes about the weather aside, the UK is relatively mild, flat and an agriculturally fertile nation. The world of South America and the Pacific was staggeringly different. If the natives felt like they were being invaded by the aliens, the crew of HMS Beagle must have felt like the USS Enterprise in Star Trek, alone and in a strange universe. Darwin had a lot more fossils to find before he came home and a platypus to encounter, which is only animal cuter than a sloth. Well, except a baby kitten and a baby sloth. By the time he reached New Zealand, it was clear Darwin had had enough of the voyage. He reflected on Christmas Day, 1835. Quote, Christmas Day. In a few more days, the fourth year of our absence from England will be completed. Our first Christmas Day was spent in Plymouth. The second at St. Martin's Cove near Cape Horn. The third at Port Desire in Patagonia. The fourth at Anchor in a wild harbour in the peninsula of Tres Montes. This fifth here, and the next I trust in Providence, will be in England. End quote. New Zealand itself didn't thrill him. He noticed invasive weeds and rats brought from Europe. He was saddened by the endemic conflict and said, quote, December 30th. In the afternoon, we stood out of the Bay of Islands on our course to Sydney. I believe we were all glad to leave New Zealand. It is not a pleasant place. Amongst the natives, there is absent that charming simplicity which is found in Tahiti, and the greater part of the English are the very refuse of society. Neither is the country itself attractive. End quote. I think he's probably being unfair, but that post-Tahiti holiday blues was always going to be hard, and it's not like he came home to his own bed and Netflix. Luckily, Australia had its own immense attractions for naturalists, especially the duckbill platypus, a creature so unique that it was the subject of an ongoing scientific and media war throughout the entire 19th century. On the one side were the eminent scientific community, who could not believe a mammal that produced milk would lay an egg, and on the other were the indigenous peoples and colonials, who swore blind that a water vole with a duckbill was a milk-producing mammal that laid eggs and wasn't a hoax being played on various scientific worthies, much like the practical jokes of real, air quote, mermaid corpses that were sent to museums sometimes. Evolutionary theory would have to explain all the quirks of the platypus, 
and other strange creatures down under. So Australia is an especially interesting case study for different body systems and evolution. Darwin's time in Australia will have to wait for next episode. I really thought we'd get him home today, but I'm afraid we just haven't had time. Before you go, I'd like to play you a trailer for the Grey History Podcast. It's an excellent show, and I'm delighted to help you find it. Take care, and bye for now. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History is a history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. The current season is focused on the French Revolution, and you'll hear the contradicting experiences and conclusions of both contemporaries and historians as we explore the grey in detail. And I do mean in detail. We're 50 hours in, and the king is still alive. So, if you're looking for your next binge-worthy, long-form history podcast, check out Grey History, The French Revolution today. That's G-R-E-Y. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria Podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.